Hello, friends. Uh, my name is Steve, and welcome to Friday Conversation, episode 78. 78. Thanks, everyone, for coming. So we'll uh, hope everyone's having a great week, and we'll go around the room to in- and, uh, introduce everyone, and then we'll get on to it. So, Chris, will you kick us off, please? Hello, my name is Chris Mullins, sometimes YouTuber, sometimes appear in Friday Conversations and other conversations on Steve's channel. And uh, here for another Friday with another group of friends and people yay and carl uh i am carl albert uh pen name carl d albert i uh just self-published my first fantasy novel truth of crowns i'm actually wearing a little t-shirt i printed out on it um and uh that was in fact intentional um i'm I'm so good at marketing you can tell uh but uh i'm in spiffo this year uh self-published fantasy blog off um anxiously awaiting the first reviews to come in uh you know and really excited to be joining just a really wonderful um community here i had followed steve's youtube channel for a while and uh glad to kind of wander my way uh into this community welcome yeah for sure glad you can make it good to see you and uh, our friend paramita's here paramita will you give us an introduction uh yes hi i'm paramita um, I like to read books, fantasy, science fiction, general fiction, classics, mystery, failing at historical fiction mostly. And uh, this is my first time on a Friday Conversation episode. Yes, I'm glad you, uh, glad you decided to join us. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll go easy on you. We'll, we'll make sure Layla's nice to you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Layla, will you give us an introduction? Um, I'm Layla Goshi. Uh, I'm a um, poet and writer, professor of English, and I'm editing a, um, sometimes editing a literary blog, I guess you'd call it, called Ballady Magazine. Nice. And Very Varsha. Hi, my name is Varsha. I run a tiny YouTube channel called Reading by the Rainy Mountain, where I like to talk about my favorite books and also have conversations with uh, people about books I like. (laughs) Did uh, she freeze her? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, did you lose me or did I lose everyone? Both, I think. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay. I don't know how much of that intro you caught, but reading by the rainy mountain—that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you can make it, Varsha. So, Carl, tell us about your books. Uh, what kind of? What? Yeah. Tell us all about it. What? What? Uh, what can you tell us about it? Oh well, thank you for asking. Um, so yeah, it's it's an epic fantasy, definitely on the darker side. Truth of Crowns. Um, it's the first book in the Ash Eternal, which is currently planned to be around a five-book series. It might end up being six. Uh, I try as I might to outline, uh, I never stick to my outlines. And I am very much uh, flying by the seat of my pants. Um, I just find that the characters kind of inevitably, I'll bump up against something in an outline that, you know, uh, a character is, it just doesn't feel right for them. It's like, that's not what they would do. And then things steer off in a wildly different direction. Um, Anyway, though, the book in question is really, I kind of pitch it as a, a classical tragedy, you know, kind of in the Shakespearean or the Greek tragedy mold. Um, 
it's structured as such. It's about these four individuals who um, pursue love and power and end up uh, crossing each other's paths and end up stumbling all of them into a vast conspiracy, a great political conspiracy um, between competing parties, uh, vying for different thrones and also for their ideals and their version of what they believe an ideal society is. And I guess that's sort of a broad pitch of what uh, book one in the series as a whole really is about. And what was Five the name books. of it again? What's Truth of name? Crowns. Truth of Crowns. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And this is this is the cover. cover? Kind of you can oh, see it, a little eye there and everything. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I had a AP Canavan. I was lucky enough. I worked with him. He edited my book, um, and he was amazing. Um, for those who don't know, he's a critical dragon on YouTube, and you know he worked on a uh, number of the Malazan books, and uh, just I mean he's super good. I you know nothing but praise, um, and he definitely improved the book a lot too. Um, yeah. Well, I look forward to reading it. Thank you. When did uh when did your idea for the book start? When did it when did the spark begin for when did it you say I'm going to write a book? Like when did that when did that happen? Yeah, so I guess in the broadest sense, you know, I've really always told stories like I I was playing sort of like imaginary games longer than a lot of kids did and I started writing when I was like 11, 12, I started writing uh fan fiction um, like anime stuff to begin and superheroes and then you know I was always reading fantasy novels which is for some reason that wasn't what I was writing and then uh, I went off to college I went to film school actually I went to uh, the University of Southern California um, where I studied screenwriting I actually work in the entertainment industry and while I was there I just was like really tired of screenwriting um, I was tired of the form and a lot of kind of the the requirements um, that are often imposed upon you, especially in film school. Um, and so I wanted to write a book and I had just gotten back into reading novels, especially fantasy novels. American Gods was kind of my entryway into adult fantasy. Um, and Game of Thrones was sort of another part of that. And so my initial idea was like, oh, you know, I want to tell Game of Thrones like that type of story, but in like a renaissance setting. Like I thought, oh, a lot of people aren't doing that. I mean, I was wrong. Actually, people have written in a renaissance <laughs> setting. Lies of Locke Lamore, you know, I read shortly thereafter and I was like, oh, okay, well, this is like clearly Venice. Like I, I you know, I'm out to lunch. Um, and so I, I, I had to adapt. And, you know, on top of that, as I started writing, like I said, you know, I, I kind of created a rough outline and it just very quickly veered off. And one of <laughs> my ways to kind of try to make my work stand out and feel unique was uh, to put a lot of myself and my lived experiences into the work. So there's actually a character who um, has uh, a couple disabilities that I have lived with. Like I, as I was born and I almost died on the day I was born. Uh, I had life-saving surgery that 100 years ago um, did not exist. And so I kind of wanted to, like my idea was like, well, how would a character with a similar thing survive in you know a, a setting where the technology is so much more primitive and you know i'm not going to get into the details but needless to say the spoiler involves you know magic and uh that ended up creating not just one but many plot lines and helped develop the world from there and um 
and then sometime during all of that, I was like, you know, I was thinking like, oh, you know, wouldn't be interesting. Um, I really like stories where like it feels like anyone can die at any time, you know. Um, like it, not not even just talking about, you know, Game of Thrones is an obvious example, and, and there are a number of fantasy series that really lead into the stakes in that way. Um, but even going back to like, I was a fan of like Joss Whedon as a kid. Uh, and Harry Potter, you know, and it's like, you know, certainly a lot of the main characters like end up sticking it out, but there are like those series are not, you know, like Buffy is not afraid to like kill off, you know, beloved side characters and things like that. And that was something that I wanted to translate that, but maybe, you know, play with it a bit. And so I thought, you know, I looked at like Shakespearean tragedies, which I was, I'm a big Shakespeare nerd. And uh, I studied him in a couple classes in college and I was like, okay, so what if I like start this story and I tell you, you know, this character is going to die. Everything is going to fall apart and you're going to watch it all happen. And then from there, I kind of really got the whole structure for the first book and for the story as a whole. And all these pieces started coming together. And over six years, um, including really during the pandemic, I've been writing off and on in college um, whenever I could. Um, the pandemic hit, I graduated into the pandemic, um, and I was like, okay, uh, I have a lot of free time right now. Um, I am going to like really pursue this really hard. Um, and the rest is kind of history. Um, I wrote the book, I wrote several drafts, rewrote it. I have a writer's group who gave me my first critiques. Um, and then eventually I found my way to uh, hiring AP, who I discovered um, through Philip Chase's channel and through Philip mentioning that um, AP had edited his books and yeah, the rest is history. That is fascinating and I it actually uh, made me think of a question because now that you've gone through all of that, you know, we there's always so much discourse around how a book has been adapted for film, you know, some of the stuff that's going on now even and um so would you want your book since you are have some expertise now in both sides of that would you want to have your book adapted for film knowing what you know about the whole process uh the short answer is yes um <laughs> because it would pay really well um, <laughs> you know, like it, it's like you're, you're in good, I mean, one, if you get something adapted, it means you've probably sold really well to begin with. Um, like mm -hmm. they don't really adapt obscure things. Um, but so that, like, I'm not gonna lie. There's the financial aspect. Like, you know, I'm, a, I'm a struggling writer, you know, like trying to make a career in Hollywood and in books. And so like, I absolutely for that alone would do it. But on top of that, I think, you know, I mean, I think given my experience and hopefully the trajectory of my career um, I would be able to be involved which would certainly help um, that I feel like I could steer it I also know that you know this is something I actually talked about with AP a lot while we were editing my book um, was just how I think a lot of common expectations around adaptations um, in fan circles are not necessarily they don't have the same perspective as someone inside the industry, right? Because they don't understand the limits and what you're dealing with, um, whether it be with executives or trying to like appeal to an even broader audience. Oh, I'm sorry if you guys hear anything, there's a really loud car driving by um, playing music. Anyway, um, and so like, I, I, you know, 
in response to like a lot of the recent adaptations, I think I more than maybe your average viewer am sympathetic to a lot of what goes wrong in them. I mean, I also just like, I think it helps that I think I fundamentally view adaptations as a different thing than the source material. Like when I watch an adaptation, it does not affect how I view the source material. Um, and so, you know, one that I actually, I, I will go to bat for is the Wheel of Time adaptation, which I think has gotten a bad rap. Um, and I'm, I'm a fan of the book series. It's not my favorite series. Um, and I think the adaptation has plenty of issues that you can discuss, you know, but uh, I think it's a lot truer to the source material, particularly spirit of the source material than um, some of its critics might argue. And so in, in that way, I guess what I'm getting back to your question is like, I, I kind of understand how difficult things are and the requirements there. And, you know, like I look at a book series like A Song of Ice and Fire and early on, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, speculate it's because George worked in TV, but it, it, it translated really well into TV, you know, uh, particularly like an HBO TV show where you, you, you had, you know, all the sex and violence and, um, you know, these re really great dialogue. Um, and then a series like Wheel of Time where it's like a lot of inner monologues you know, mm. it's a lot of description of people's clothing, you know, it's a lot of like walking around on journeys, which you can only do so much before it starts to be, you know, really repetitive on screen and arguably repetitive in the books, you know, certainly that's a criticism of particularly the early books in the Wheel of Time. Um, and I think, you know, and then there's just the sprawl of it. And then that was an issue that Game of Thrones faced, mm. you know, eventually is with books four and five is like suddenly you doubled the amount of POV characters and so, you know, Dan and Dave had to cut them in half. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think some of their choices were mistaken. I'm certainly someone who is uh, extremely critical of the last couple seasons of Game of Thrones. I think it just completely went off the rails. But I, I think I'm also sympathetic to the struggle um, of it and so wouldn't be against having my own work adapted. And the strange thing I'm finding, I'm working on book two right now, uh, I was actually working on it right before I, I, I hopped on this podcast, uh, rewriting the prologue, and um, I'm finding uh, something that uh, George Martin talked about where he, um, I don't know if you all know this, but like between A Storm of Swords, or after A Storm of Swords, there's supposed to be a five-year gap, right? Um, and age up all the characters, and it, it, you know, you were, I think it was primarily because, you know, there are a lot of kid characters and like kind of unbelievable to believe like 11, 12 year old Arya is going around like assassinating people and stuff, you know? So I think that was, that was the original intent, but he found that like events accelerated things such that um, he had to like keep going. And I think that really lends itself to a TV show, you know, because time breaks are hard. And I'm finding actually in my book, uh, I originally was planning like like the Dune series, which is another one of my big inspirations to have big, uh, like multi-year, like time skips between each book. Uh, and I'm finding at least between book one and two that I can't do that, that I'm picking up almost exactly where book one ended just because it's like, oh, there's so much I have to resolve and it would be really cheap to not do that uh, in the next season, which I think would actually lend itself to a TV show where, you know, you, you probably are not going to want, because you want to keep the same actors, you don't want to have characters like age up a lot off screen. So sorry, that's a really long-winded, convoluted answer uh, to what you're <laughs> no, asking. I, I, sorry. No, that's very interesting. And I, um, I agree with everything you said, especially about Wheel of Time. Um, 
I'm a fan uh, as well, and um, I'm okay with the changes they've made. Um, but I think what they did, the best of every, the best thing that they did was the casting, because that helps carry along a lot of some of the other details that are getting glossed over. You know, but I thought they really hit the mark with the casting. So Agreed. excited for the next season. But I, yeah. Hmm. I'd be the second voice to say I absolutely hate so much of that uh, adaptation. It's untrue, and and it really comes down. It really comes down to the fact that it'll be the same for anybody. When you read a book, the non-negotiables for you as a reader change from person to person. Absolutely. Do you, you know what I mean? The things that I think all oh, these are the things that are really important to the story are not the same things that Farsh or Carter or anybody else will, will do. So when anybody's watching that adaptation, it's supposed to satisfy everybody. And it, it obviously can't. Like It's, it's right. an impossible thing to do. Yeah. And so the things that I would take as the non-negotiables for a winner time are the things, are some of the things that changed. Some some of the other things. Like, yeah, okay. thing is, I watched it and I sort of enjoyed it because like, how rare is a fantasy adaptation happening on screen anyway? <laughs> So Absolutely. you can really take out what you have out of it, and then kind of go on and go right. Well, that's maybe the, the things that I really want will kick in further down the line. Maybe that's the important resolution of the excitement that comes for the reader, and kind of hope on hope. But I can I can still be annoyed, the wrong word, just mildly disappointed that the, the the story that I want to tell is not the story that I'm seeing. I, and I, I just want to jump in to say uh, very quickly, I don't want to hog any more of the, the mic time, but um, <laughs> no, go for it. That I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think there is, um, I think it's perfectly normal and fine, you know, to dislike an adaptation and to dislike it for whatever personal reasons you have. Um, and I, I, I never uh, want to press back against anyone just like, having an opinion or anything um any sort of uh you know when i saw like it getting like an unfair rep i think a big part of that is just i think the the vitriol around the conversation you know is something that i mean even with like rings of power you know like i, I was just like it, i thought it was like okay like i didn't think it was great but you know like i i just there's so much like hyperbole I mean, frankly, on both sides, really, like, yeah. you know, uh, of an argument that it's like, okay, can we all just like treat each other, you know, respectfully? And I love, you know, I mean, that's, that's a thing that a reason why I gravitated toward Steve's channel and like all the people mm -hmm. that have been on your channel and stuff. And I, I will absolutely check out uh, y'all stuff too, is uh, just the kind of level headed, like, you know, uh, discussion, I think is just so refreshing on the internet, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's something we talk about and when we're doing our discussions. I, I, I say my favourite part is that somebody loved the bit that I hated. You know, because it does show that it wasn't poorly written or it wasn't kind of bad. It just didn't work for me, but completely worked for somebody else. And I, I, I take great solace in that, insofar as that, that's that's a taste thing or that's a, you know, a, whatever way I was feeling that day or reading it or something. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like it's just sharing perspectives, and sometimes I kind of change my opinion. You know, I mean, uh, if I hear a good argument for why, um, you know, maybe uh, a character wasn't as I thought, or vice versa. So, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Seems like, oh, you know, one thing I would say, um, I think part of the whole issue with Game of Thrones was that the books are unfinished. So if you're like a reader, you know, 
some of those characters are still alive in the books. Right. So, like, wait a minute, you know. Um, yeah, and so if you're, um, so that goes with any other, I think, books that we're reading. If, if you're getting that world from a book, then that always seems to be the, um, or at least for me, like the, the foundational p position of the story. And probably for most readers too, but yeah. So, but with, um, say, Wheel of Time, um, you know, there's only, hopefully there's only one conclusion they can come to. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think Power, I just saw it's like a, a fun show to watch. I mean, it, it wasn't that deep, and I knew it wasn't from, it wasn't trying to adapt an original text except for some, you know, resources that they had. So, I don't know. So, I enjoyed it. And we spoke, I think, last week or so about The Witcher and how, uh, Carl, you were mentioning how studios can come in and change the creative process. How often does that happen for any series? A lot. I mean, a lot, a lot. Especially, I think, a, a thing I commented in the... The thread you're talking about was that often the more money that's involved in the project, the more interference it'll have. So, you know, that's why you see these blockbusters that end up feeling very samey is because they're having to appeal to a hundred different, you know, people who have a stake in the game. Um, and it's, it's frustrating. It's difficult. You, some people are better at balancing that than others, you know. I think you definitely see, uh, and certainly it, it varies depending on the company too, right? Like there are projects I know of at like Netflix, for example, that I know didn't have a lot of interference. And there are others that had like dozens of people unrelated, like not in the writer's room, giving notes. Um, I do know that uh, like, for example, because it's been quoted um, going back to the Wheel of Time, that uh, Rafe Judkins, the showrunner, talked about how he had like, like hundreds of notes on the pilot episode alone, or like maybe even like thousands. Like it was some absurd number, and I'm sure he was like slightly exaggerating. But like, it, when you're when you're in that Hollywood atmosphere, like you know, like you're getting like everyone's notes, everyone's assistance notes, like just just everything. It's crazy. Like it, it's absolutely absurd. And so it's a lot harder to get kind of a distilled down like quote unquote like authorial perspective um, through the editing bay. And you know, I think it takes a certain mindset to be able to handle that. And, and, and that's not to say there aren't people who um, get things through without a lot of interference. Like uh, an example I gave in the thread was Guillermo del Toro, who um, I've heard speak uh, and say that he doesn't take any notes now. Um, and I think it's partly a success thing. I mean, a big part of success thing. Although a number of his movies, especially recently, haven't made all that much money. Um, so I think some of it is also just like maybe budgeting. Um, I don't know. It's all a political game, really. You know, like you, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta play the Game of Thrones, and you know, you win or you die. Uh, and it, that's that's Hollywood, baby. That's it, it's. There's no like one size fits all answer to this because it does vary a lot. But certainly, a good rule of thumb is the more money invested in things, and all of these fantasy shows are gonna have lots of money invested. These are not cheap shows to make. You know they're going to have a lot of hands uh, in the pot, and that's uh, can be really difficult. Um, 
and I think yeah. it's an off underlooked uh, aspect of it, you know. Like I think there are specific aspects of the Wheel of Time story, the way that season one was adapted, for example, that you could directly look at and be like, this was added because uh, some executive didn't think that the book would translate, you know, that they had to do a thing, you know, they had to like, and, and, and sometimes it's to, I think, a show's benefit because sometimes, you know, you can get very much stuck in the weeds of like what a story is and it's nice to have kind of an outsider perspective, but oftentimes it leads to watering down uh, the source material, definitely. I've been watching The Witcher with interest because I think at a, at a base level, I think they've misunderstood what that show was, which was a Monster of the Week show. Uh, for an awful lot of people, the overarching story, I don't think, like for me, you people are sitting here, it might matter, but for the actual bulk of people that were going, it was a Monster of the Week show. And as soon as you take the monsters out and put in an overarching story, people are like, I don't care. It's not, and then they start to critique and go, it's, it's hard to follow. I didn't follow it for two seasons here, and now you're asking me to to follow it. And it's like, right, okay. Because that's certainly my wife, and she has read the books, but just still like, wants to see the monsters, wants to see the sword play, wants to see, wants to see the costumes. You know, that's what that show is for them. And to kind of turn it and spin its head into something else and then blame the audience. I think you misrepresented it a little bit. The Witcher. Huh? Oh, The Witcher. The Witcher. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with you, and I think that actually the monster aspects was one of the things that, you know, having read the books, um, I was just, I'm actually almost done rereading Baptism of Fire, and I don't know why I'm rereading the books, because I don't love them that much. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like the short stories, but I, yeah. I don't know. I They have their moments, but like, it's, I think I commented something like, it's, it's a lot of people expositing stuff that happened off screen that was much more interesting than, you know, what they're actively doing on screen. And it like, yeah. I, it is a strange, you know, I don't know. I, I'm sure there, there are Witcher fans out there. Like if anyone's listening and like really loves the Witcher books, I'm sorry, like this is just my point of view, but uh, it, it's, I'm with you. I think the monsters was certainly, you know, because uh, it's not just the monsters it's like the the remixing of the fairy tales and like the thematics going on there like it, it is kind of a i don't know to me more interesting than a lot of like the what feels like very convoluted and even sort of generic politics yeah going that's on a- that's just like it's just not on the level of some of the other you know political fantasies and um certainly they i think didn't make the best use of some some i think really talented actors um yeah not least of which obviously it's Henry Cavill. Um, and yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I think if the show was a little more monster focused, it would probably be more interesting, um, certainly more consistent, um, but they're trying to, yeah, they're doing a weird dance where season two is nothing like the books at all. And now yeah. season three, like tried to bring it back around, but it's, I don't know, it's all over the place that show. Yeah, I am a fan of The Witcher, but I admit it's it's a hard read, and it, you know it's not. And I think that's uh, probably some of this problem. It um, you can't just sit there and read The Witcher and come away. You know, it's not a light read. You know, right. it's complex and um, confusing. And yeah, I had to read through it twice to <laughs> to figure out some things out. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, definitely. I don't. Well, again, it's everybody's opinion, but I don't think that gives them the, you know, right. I guess I don't know to completely go off 
off of the story. And uh, one of my main issues where I just decided to not watch anymore was the um, mischaracterization of Yennefer, you know, and we can go into all of that, but she kind of, they kind of skewed Yennefer's values and ethics, and I was like, well, that's, there's no fun in that anymore, because what attracted me to Yennefer was that she did have a core ethic about, uh, and issues around motherhood and, and all of that stuff, and um, they kind of broke that, so I just said, you know, if I want to see Yennefer again, I'll just read the book again. <laughs> that might take a while, because I've got so many other books to read. So. Yeah. I think my comfort read right now, I'm rereading uh, Gardens of the Moon in preparation for Varsha's mm. uh, relaunch of the reading of uh, Manhattan. And uh, But it's become a comfort read for me. I listen, I, actually I listen. I listen to a little bit every night and I'm, it's really my third read through and I'm finally starting to put things together and uh, you know and so it's comforting i can't explain it it's a it's a weird feeling like okay now i know these characters and and uh he really is getting at something deep in my opinion and um yeah so you know totally agree speaking of tough tough text um that's one to hang in there for you know Absolutely. i agree with that yeah yeah, it all comes together in the tent. <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> I, I'm not even kidding. I'm only half kidding. I'm only joking right now. <laughs> and okay, I love the books. I do with a deep passion. I started my YouTube channel so I could talk about the books. So I say this. <laughs> with as much love as possible <laughs> it all comes together in the 10th book <laughs> until then it did not make sense to me i did not understand what was going on i just you know enjoyed the little sections and pieces so. <laughs> but 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 are they a comfort read i've never i don't think i've ever heard malazan ever talked about in terms of a comfort read yeah it's an interesting thought <laughs> it it isn't for me i wouldn't because i need to be involved for my, I guess it depends on your definition of a comfort read. For me, a comfort read is something like a popcorn read. I guess I like to watch rom-coms when I don't want to think too much about what I'm watching. So that's the kind of book I would call a comfort read for myself. But is familiarity maybe something that makes something a comfort read for you? I think it's a familiarity of the characters and Paramita, I wonder, did you, have you read Malazan? I have, but I would rather not talk about it. I have read uh, all 10 books. Oh. oh. Yes. Paramita, I, I need you. Because these people are trying to talk me into something I don't really want to do right now, and, no, uh, and, I, uh, <laughs> and I need I need somebody to at least give me a balanced view because I'm only hearing one side of the argument. I for something which is so beloved to so many people, I don't feel right to say what I felt. No, you should. no absolutely, you should. No, speak freely. Yeah, we're Chris. Yeah. Or we Chris and I talked yesterday. We we encourage your hot takes. 
Absolutely. Fire away. Yeah. You're 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 safe. Let's hear it. I don't see any reason why this was as beloved as it. None. Like not the writing, not the characters, not the world building. I I I why? I was I was hitting my head on the wall with the first book and I hit my head on the wall with the 10th book. And uh, on 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 some level that is that is sad to me because uh, I obviously something which is very beloved by a lot of people completely eludes me. But I have read the eight, the 10 books within the limit of my reading comprehension and I'm sorry I I I don't see any any I don't see the appeal I'm sorry. Hmm. That was an afternoon for you. I was just going to say I'm impressed you stuck out all 10 books. Like that's yeah. that's a huge commitment. Yeah. So this is not a very positive thing which I did at all. I should have stuck to my initial decision which was to stop after the second book, but then a lot of people said that if try the third book and then it comes together. And uh, for me it still didn't. And then they said that uh, well, you know the So you start to see the reverberations in the themes in 5 and 6 and so i said uh, okay we, we we i mean i will try this and i will try and uh, it, it was an experiment it utterly and totally failed <laughs> <laughs> you know parmita i i have a lot of respect for your opinion because you ask the best questions and you notice you know such important details in um the books we talk about and i just wonder have do you do you work with literature are you a writer or have you taken literature courses or never 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 yeah you just really have a knack for getting you know to the essence of some Books. So definitely Very kind of you to say. Yeah, definitely. I have um, a hot take on adaptations as well, but I'm going to keep quiet. No, please. No, come no, on, no, tell us. Yeah, hot takes make the world go round. <laughs> I thought the Wheel of Time show was really, really disappointing. The Rings of Power show was insulting. insulting i'm 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 yes i'm insulted i want to cry i actually cried i think oh. at the end of the first episode and not for a good reason oh, no. uh, a particular character jumps into a water body to swim to a particular destination and i wanted to jump with that particular character <laughs> <laughs> that's that's bad i'm sorry I'm sorry Rings of Power is not Tolkien. I'm sorry. Not, okay. And yeah. no, I I I I Okay. I am not some uh you know wall building aficionado and I cannot quote Middle Earth or legendarium lore like some of my uh, much more well-read friends can but if you have read even Hobbit or even Lord of the Rings how 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 <laughs> I I I I cried. I I I'm literally crying thinking about it. I'm going to stop. 
but uh, on the adaptation part so i'm just a viewer i have no idea about the creation part i have no idea about how things get made what things get cut how many people interfere on the viewer end i think i'm a bit spoiled because i read the lord of the rings book because of the movies i was at that point in my life when the movies came out and so for me i mean for an adaptation there are three things first one is fidelity to the source material because according to me if if someone is adapting a source material why would you not try to at least represent its core spirit then don't adapt that ip like write your own that's the first one second one regarding a source material if it's a book did it motivate did it bring in new readers hmm. for lord of the rings the answer is yes for game of thrones at least first season i would say yes it has 2.2 million ratings on goodreads i do not think that number is unrelated to the show then maybe people dropped off and they realized that okay i prefer the tv show and i'm not so much into the books but i think there was a correlation i okay rings of power i don't think anybody would want to read lord of the rings based on that uh, because it's the appendices and uh, similarly in they don't have the rights to but they make these weird allusions forget the magicians on sci-fi was an excellent excellent tv show again motivated me to pick up the books by lev grossman excellent tv show they totally went off the rails because i mean it's three books and they had five seasons and uh, book 1 and 2 is parallel timeline so that was done in one season so they totally changed it after season 2 but it was a fantastic show and how much of the books they kept they kept fantastically dune film part 1 excellent adaptation excellent adaptation the core theme has been preserved by according to me by the filmmaker of what dune is trying to do i mean if you change the gender of the you know the ecologist or something that doesn't matter at all but the core theming of uh, the fremen and things like that is on point um wheel of time is a tough one i wanted to read the books after season 1 but i don't think it was because of the show i mean like there's a basic thing robert jordan wrote a perfect prologue and they had rosamund pike narrate something because she's a star i, I that's that's an executive you, note i can tell you that's an executive note um i why why would you do I, that why would you destroy that prologue it's so, a perfect prologue i i can speak to this a little bit actually um cuz i read the script before a year before the episode came out so i read one of the earlier drafts they shot um i just had a friend who wasn't even working on the show but somehow ended up with the script uh it was floating around hollywood i guess and um the original prologue was the foretelling of rand's birth or it's not even like the foretelling cuz it's happening as he's being born um which was different than how it was in new spring um but was at least interesting as opposed to what we got which i thought was terrible um yeah i just rewatched episode 1 and I, i i think the first half of the episode is really quite bad i really like the second half like starting from like yeah. when they're putting the lanterns out i think it gets really good and it leaves me feeling so weird because i i mean just the pacing is terrible i think it was cut to pieces it literally we we know that it had like an arbitrary they had to be under this time limit 
you know? Um, and I think that really hurt the episode. And then certainly the opening was just awful. I mean, both of their little teasers, I thought, were just like, the second one felt like something out of Power Rangers, you know, with the blocks, like the boulders falling down and they just like abrupt, the two guys just like jump back. Like it's, it's just goofy looking. Um, and yeah, certainly that, I don't know what was going on with them expositing all that info that we already get throughout the episode of like who the dragon reborn is and why she's searching for him and that it's it was terrible and so i agree with you that robert jordan wrote like a perfect prologue it's like it's it's up there for one of the all-time greats i don't i don't think i have the world as a book is like near one of the all-time no. greats but that prologue yeah. no. is legendary and it is like a great hook for the series hopefully we get it in season two we'll see We'll see. But no, I mean, I think they butchered it a bit in the beginning of season eight. So I don't think they're going to redo it, but I, I hope they do. If they do, I'll be very happy. Um, what was that? So yeah, fidelity to the source material. I, I'll finish very quickly. Uh, second one is, did it bring it new readers? And the third one, which I think is crucial, as you were talking about, Witcher, I was thinking about this, longevity. Will people be watching this in 20 years? Yeah, I, I, well, I'll speak to that because I don't think that's ever the intention of Wheel of Time or Rings of Power. It's to generate new subscribers. That's the model for streaming. Mm -hmm. Actually, they're not worried about re retaining viewers at all. They're they're trying to generate new subscribers because that's what drives um, shares, etc. In the company, they need something to be bombastic and big, and that's why they wouldn't take a chance. Like Wheel of Time has a Rosamund Pike problem for sure because it's the center of all the posters, and it sort of subverts the chosen one trope, which is what the whole book is, and that's my my main part yeah. about it. Like yeah, uh, from the thing, but. <sighs> Good adaptations are so so difficult. Like I cannot. Yeah. I really struggle to think of one that I absolutely love from start to finish. Like I can think of something like The Last of Us, which I think gets about ninety percent right. But for somebody that loves the source material, that ten percent that they miss is so bothersome. <laughs> it's like uh, it's, it's and it's so unfair. It's very unfair on, on the show and the adaptation and the people that are working on it. Like that kind of idea. That idea. I've not. I've not seen it myself, and it's not SFF, but I have heard Atonement was a near-perfect adaptation of the movie, except one change. But other than that, uh, I have heard that it was a very, very good adaptation. I don't think it has to be, it has, it has to be 100% or anything like that. But just read the books. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I see stuff and I'm like, did they read the book? It just reminds me of that. Uh, it's a meme now, D&D uh, &D from uh, season eight, where you know they say we forgot, and I'm like, oh, they forgot to read the books. So. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely does happen. There definitely are times where things are adapted by people who don't love the source material. Yeah, I will say for Rings of Power and Wheel of Time, the the at least the head writers definitely love the source material. I mean, if you see them talk about it, they do care. I, I mean, you you can certainly argue one way or another if if they you know messed it up. Um, uh, certainly there's lots of room there. Um, and I s personally certainly feel that uh, Wheel of Time got much closer than Rings of Power. My own feeling about Wheel of Time is I felt like that the show was much more of an ensemble from this onset, which is not true in the books. The books yeah. is very dialed into Rand. And yeah. I, I personally like that they spread the focus because I thought the book series got more interesting once they spread the focus. But um, I also understand why because it definitely changes the tone of Eye of the World. I, like, the show feels different 
than the first book. But to me, it feels more like the later books, which is why I, I could get on board with it. That, that's just my own personal vibe. Rings of Power is weird, where I feel like it almost feels like Tolkien, but like Tolkien fanfic. Like it's like trying to evoke the yeah. feeling, but it's not like there exactly. And at the same time, I don't feel like a lot of the movies necessarily get the exact same vibe. I, I also saw the movies first, and I, I'm actually a her heretic who prefers the movies to the books, uh, <laughs> except for The Hobbit. The Hobbit book is like way better than the movies. Yeah, um, yeah. And I actually prefer The Hobbit book to the Lord of the Rings books. Anyway, that's my hot take for the day. Um, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that, you know, I mean, just because they're more like action heavy and like very much like there's something to the epic poem, you know, kind of styles of the books that I think is hard to translate. Um, but the movies did certainly a much better job, I think, than Rings of Power, although I didn't hate Rings of Power. I, I thought it was all right. I just thought my, my biggest gripe was I just felt like it was kind of boring for a lot of it. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it just yeah. kind of dragged on. Certainly a bit I, predictable. I yeah. watched it with my book club, but we we basically abandoned expectations of it being like Tolkien and just were like, okay, we're watching this. Although we did have a couple of Tolkien experts in the group and, you know, they had things to say, but that's how I, so I approach it as just a new thing because, you know. Well, I, I, I think that's the, I, just my, my opinion is you will enjoy adaptations a lot more if that's how you like go into every adaptation. It's be like, it is its own thing. Like, if you want that one-to-one -one or even, like, 90% adaptation, maybe you'll get it, but probably not. Like, even Dune ha is missing some really important scenes from the book. Um, and and I, I'm right there with you, Paramita, that I think that's, like, that's, like, as good as an adaptation gets. Like, I, I, it's up there and made some changes. You know, I think there are aspects of it that are better than the book and aspects that are worse than the book. Um, but it, it, I just think, it, in general, a person will be happier, um, just like if they can find a way to like divorce it, the two in their head. Um, yeah, but I understand, especially if it's something like important to you, you know, a work that's important to you or that shaped you in any way. That that could be really hard. Like God, if Robin Hobb was ad uh, adapted, I I think I would have a hard time. Oh, <laughs> Robin Hobb. But her books should never be attempted because they're very, very literary. You know, the, the, a lot of the, the what's great about that series is in the words and in the inter again sort of internal monologue and all of that kind of stuff that goes on. But in the characters' heads, that 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 can't come out in the screen. It just can't. It's impossible. Yeah, you you, you would definitely have to make changes. I mean, I think you would have to see. I, I don't even know. It almost has to be like kind of slice of life because the books are kind of slice of life. Yeah, that's you right. Know? And it, 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 that would certainly be hard to get. Hollywood to give money to that, you know, because it, it wouldn't be all Game of Thrones, like every episode ends on a cliffhanger sort of thing. Yeah. I, th I think the much more interesting question, a bit of to you, Carl, actually, since you work on it, if you had mid-tier money to make a mid-tier adaptation, which books or book series do you do? Because obviously people can say, like, around the end, just pick the big things that are gonna you're going to get financed for, but if you had mid-tier money to do and to do a social job what's the book that you think story-wise would make a great um, adaptation i think so i you know i i, I think you could do the first two farseer books on mid-tier money the problem is when you get to mm -hmm. the third and beyond it gets much more 
fantastical. Um, but that wouldn't that wouldn't be my answer. I the, the first thing that came to mind. I've actually only read the first two books in this series, um, but the uh, uh, Greenbone Saga I think you could do with a mm. relatively small budget um, and not not honestly have to make that many changes. Um, you know, uh, it's I think the biggest issue you would have would be the time skips. Um, but I also don't think there are that extensive of time skips until the third book is my understanding. That's the one I haven't read is the last one. Um, and so I think in that case, you probably could get away because at that point they've already committed, you know, and if you're on the last one, you can probably get a little riskier um, just because it's it's the end. Um, like, what are they going to do, fire you? Um, but I, I think the show will be renewed for the third series, which is always the uh, the big money right. increase from the cast anyway, or it won't, right. you know, at that stage. So it'll either do well. Same for the Farseer books. You could get the first two made, and if it's gangbusters, they'll give you the money for the third. Right. You know, regardless of what's going to happen, kick it up, and, and mm-hmm. if not, then, then so be it. But I do think if we're, I think if we're going to have any success in seeing fantasy adaptations is that we get some mid-tier adaptations that are actually quite good. And celebrated rather than them all have to be like all the money on the screen if it's not visually impressive it's dead i'm, I'm right there with you i would like that and i think i think that's a problem in hollywood in general right now yeah. uh you're seeing is a lot of blockbuster movies are bombing um yeah you know and I, I think you're gonna see a lot of budgets dialed back down um and we're gonna see more um probably not like way smaller movies but certainly like not the 200 250 million dollar budget like gigantic you know which, which is crazy because a lot of these movies look terrible too like the worst CGI <laughs> you've ever seen but it, it, it's who knows what what all goes on behind the scenes um but i think we will see more of that in general and i hope fantasy gets in on that because that's um, been one thing i don't know i've been really enjoying is just that we have more fantasy shows yeah like sure. you know like that just the feeling you know I mean, that's one maybe one of the reasons i'm like softer on like Wheel of Time, for example, is and and I, and I do genuinely like the show. I th- I think episode eight certainly fumbled things, but like we're getting a fantasy show. Like this is yeah, so cool, sure. you know. We're getting to see channeling on screen. Like we're getting to see these big locales and like you know the big like Age of Legends skyscrapers like all grown over. Like that's so cool, you know. That's everything I wanted as a kid, you know. And that we only got with like Lord of the Rings and all the other stuff was like the crappy Shannara show and like you know stuff that just like looked terrible. And was like yeah. it, it just like you cringed like every every episode with like the worst actors you've ever seen in the world. It's and I don't want to go too hard on them, but like it's so far though. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned Barney does things. hot takes are infectious. Yeah. I was going to say something uh, about the Witcher uh, books, and I wanted to say something about uh, what Chris said about mid-tier adaptations. So which should I do first? Uh, Maybe the Witcher book first, because uh, that's what Lala was saying. So one thing which I know because I'm on a server where there are a lot of uh, European friends is that the Witcher books in English translation have been butchered. And um, it is not the translator's fault. What happened was they employed someone who does technical translations. Mm. So a lot of the... Um, how do I say the metaphors and the little, 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 little folklore and uh, the jokes and everything 
is lost and this has not happened in the european languages because uh, when i have i've spoken to two different people who both have which are on their top 10 list one of them is a friend of the forum jolian so uh-huh. she read them in dutch and she said it was fantastic and i know someone else who read them in german and said that they were fantastic and i just think that something has been lost in translation so it's 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 something that is sad to me and maybe the show would have done well they would have like reissued the book i mean try to do a translation but i don't think it's uh, it's likely to happen from the way things are going so i mean it it's it's very sad because it's one of the few uh, in sff or non sff of course we have a lot more translated literature but in sff this is one of the mainstream ones which is non anglophone and it is superbly popular and it, it's just very sad to me that we have uh, possibly something being lost in translation here you know that's There's a, a great solution point. though sorry you know that's a great point what's the solution at at one point uh during my one of my read throughs of the witcher i started investigating the names that he gave and to the characters and one was uh yaskier who uh is translated to buttercup in english you know but i think in the show yeah they they use the name yaskier but so i did this whole deep dive into the mythology of what this name was and everything and and there actually is a mythology behind it in you know polish and european history which you know uh about a young man and and i forget exactly what it was but um you know that more i think related to the personality we see in the books you know and um just his excesses and we see some of those excesses in the show too but i just i'm following up on what hermita said that there may be just a more culturally um relevant meaning to the name yaskier that's just going over our heads because we're not you know of polish culture so so that's a great point um to think about yuli needs a cape because i think she's a superhero she can read so many different languages and she's yeah. amazing yeah well that was going to be my solution parmeda just a couple more languages is all you need and then there's more books to read and you know it doesn't seem that difficult to me <laughs> thank you so much no problem really <laughs> oh boy what was your other point oh right Uh, so Chris was actually asking about uh, mid-tier adaptations and one I really loved and it's on a book which Varsha has also read and I know she has loved because she has given it five stars is uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell mm. by Susanna Clarke. Uh, so the BBC have a very nice eight, ep- I think it's a seven episode miniseries. It's probably, it's on YouTube. Uh, and my God, wow. Just wow. It is, it is, it is. so so soothing to my heart to see that uh to see that mini series and to see the respect for the book and what the book tried to do there are lots of things in the book that obviously didn't make it through i mean there are footnotes and things like that lots of little little things but the core uh element of the book which is that magic comes alive in england 
it comes through in the mini series and it's so beautiful I agree. That is a great adaptation. I hadn't even thought about that uh, as like a mid-budget fantasy, but that, that's definitely, that's a, that's a wonderful one. Yeah, I've been meaning to see it and I haven't gotten around to it. I think I wanted to reread the book first and it's a thousand page book, so I've been postponed. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love the book. I, it gave me like a two month long hangover or something. I couldn't read anything wow. else when I finished it. It was excellent. Steve, when are we starting the read-along for Jonathan? <laughs> <It's right there. laughs> oh, nice. Steve, exists the I'll read it with you again. I have been meaning to read it. Reread it. Yeah, well, uh, a few months. Steve, don't yes to things. It's like again, intervention yeah. time. <laughs> like yeah. Varsha, definitely intervention. Steve also on intervention and Chris is very near intervention. I have to organize interventions for all of you. Way yeah. too many read-alongs. Yeah. Well, in, in our defense, I, I will say that we've been going slow. So we have been, because I used to read 100 pages a day. And now I'm 100 pages a week on some of these books. So it's yeah. manageable. It's, yeah, but you do seven books. <laughs> That's the problem. It's like, I can manage I can manage 100, another 100 pages a week, and then it's like, oh, should I have like eight books to read? <laughs> so now I have to like over 100 pages a day. So, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It doesn't, oh, I don't yeah. mean but anytime no, soon, but good. when you read it, I will read yeah. it with you. We'll, when we finish Matterhorn or Baru Comorant or whatever, we'll, we'll add it in when we finish one of the things we are already planning. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. No, I'm, I've been wanting to read it. Yeah, definitely. So. In terms of Hollywood and, and the direction, they've obviously had a very, as far as I can remember, the biggest summer that they've had in a very, very long time here. And they're either going to, they always, like copycat is what happens. It's just like American sports. Whenever there's a successful thing, everybody tries to do the same thing. And it's about what lessons they learn from Barbie and Oppenheimer. And that is hopefully not that people just really like 80s toys and 70s toys, but that they trusted to really big IPs to two really big creatives in Greta Gerwig and uh, Christopher Nolan and let them do what they wanted in, in free thing and I very much doubt that is the lesson that they will learn because uh, that is history tells us that is not what happens in this in this circumstance yeah history is a flat circle and Hollywood's just running laps like <laughs> it's oh man yeah I remember, I remember the the conversations about Barbie. Well, everybody was wrong about going. This this can't be any good. This, there's no way that this is a thing. And I was like, but Greta Gerwig's in charge of this. Like this is this is actually really quite big news in film world. They give it the, and she took on this project as a creative. Like I I think all the signs were there that this was going to be wildly successful, because while it'll be a Barbie adaptation, it'll be about a lot of things, and cultural it'll be a cultural yardstick probably because of it, and it's sort of turned into that. For good and for bad, you know, because it's creative discourse. I haven't seen Barbie yet. How um, have you? Any of you all seen Barbie? Mm-hmm. So, what are your thoughts? I really enjoyed it. Um, I I've heard a range of opinions, but um, <laughs> I personally really really liked it. Uh, I just think it's like really fun. Like I just had a really good time. Um, I know of, uh, I mean, several women in my life who it was very meaningful and powerful 
uh, too. But even as a man, I, I just thought it was like a really good time. And, and honestly, I thought that the standout actor in the movie was Ryan Gosling. He's hilarious. I mean, he's kind of given the most fun character to play, so that's a big reason why. Uh, like, it's just like, he's all the best lines, and like, he's just so goofy. Um, but it, it, I mean, it really is, I thought, phenomenal. I thought everyone was, you know, firing on all cylinders. Um, it's a really weird movie, which is not something you see a lot in like blockbusters. Like, it has really quirky, strange moments and storytelling choices. Um, and some of the things that I think are more traditionally appreciated in blockbuster movies, like, I don't know, like, big plot twists and, like, logical sort of, like, rules don't, this movie almost, like, operates on, like, kind of dream logic. Like, it's like, it's like kids playing with toys, you know? It's like, it, it's crazy. And it does, like, there's a lot about it that doesn't really make sense, but it's, like, super fun. And if you can just, like, go along for the ride, I think it's just, like, it's just a really good time. Um, and you'll laugh a lot and, like, enjoy the musical numbers and, you know, things like that. One of my friends saw it and really liked it. I just haven't had the chance yet, you know, to see it. Um, I saw Oppenheimer. I don't know if anyone's seen that. Um, I... It was okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, um, I thought it went a little too long. Yeah. I thought that no the end of the film, the same impact could have been made in a much shorter time period because at a certain point, you do kind of lose the plot at the end as, you know... Um, yeah, and I don't know if anyone's seen that, so I won't, you know, I won't uh, give the total end, but, yeah. I, I, I heard a bomb goes off. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Jeez, spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry. I like the first half of it. I like the first I, half of it. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I, I generally agree with you, Layla. I, I think I maybe liked it more, but I it definitely was too long, and it felt like, the movie kind of ended like multiple times um and i without getting into like spoilers like it definitely i don't know it, it definitely was kind of structured in a weird way that it, there were things you could have trimmed down on certainly but that's a common you know I, I i was gonna say it's a common nolan problem but i'm definitely finding that's a common issue with like movies recently it's a lot of movies are like three hours long that don't need to be three hours long um I don't know what's going on there. It, it's the Marvel problem. Yeah. The value for money became that you had that movie had to be two and a half hours long for people to get value for money, and as increasingly once you get once you take origin stories out of fan, or fantasy stories or superhero movies, the movie doesn't need to be two and a half hours longer anymore. Like in, in the early days when right. you're doing origin story and then story, two and a half hours is right. That makes sense. But I, every time, last three Marvel movies that I've seen, and I've been to see them all in the cinema, so like maybe I'm the problem. Uh, I felt this should have been an hour and a half. This this definitely should have been an hour and a half, and had it been an hour and a half, it'd have been it'd have been more fun. That that element of fun, which is what should, this movie should be about, is the thing. Like I, I watched uh, Babylon recently, which is again way too long as a movie, but it's extraordinary. Like I think Damien Chazelle, another amazing creative. I can't believe somebody gave him money to make this movie that basically criticizes Hollywood for three hours ten minutes, <laughs> and the budget that they did with it. But it'll never have an audience because it's three hours ten long. 
I need to Plus see it. I, I haven't seen it. I'm a big fan of Damien Chazelle. It's wild as well. <laughs> it is properly wild. Capital W, capital I, capital L, capital D. A couple of times ago. <laughs> what the hell? It's so much fun. I'm excited. I love when stories, movies, TV shows, books, whatever, take wild swings. Yeah. Like, I always admire that. You know, the courage it takes to do that. Even if they don't, like, even if it doesn't work. You know, I have to admire, you know, just swinging for the fences. Um, yeah. Love that. I, I do wonder what the success for Barbie and Oppenheimer is if it's because it's a big budget movie that isn't a kids movie and isn't horror that isn't also isn't a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how much that was appealing for some people who are just, you know, just wanting to get out and watch something different that was still had the spectacle kind of, you know, Oppenheimer and Barbie. It's still like, a, it seemed like a, had that Hollywood magic kind of thing, but it wasn't superhero related i wonder if that was a, an appeal for some people they just wanted something different i think absolutely like that definitely played a part i i, like I mean well, go ahead go ahead oh I, I was just going to say that uh i think it helps that they know that chris nolan gives them that you know in a way that maybe some other filmmakers they wouldn't know what to expect or they would be a little warier of a biopic um but you know, Chris Nolan always brings spectacle, even if it's like kind of trippy or weird or like a, a headier film. Like, there's always, as he describes, the audiovisual experience, and I and I definitely think that played into things, a hundred percent. And it also just got caught up in you know lightning in a bottle and like the Barbenheimer thing, whereas like <laughs> yeah. that became a whole thing. Like who, yeah. who that, you know, they just got really lucky and then capitalized on it. Um, and you know, kudos to them. Yeah. You know, something that um, I I think was part of the momentum for why we decided to see Oppenheimer was that, you know, we're kind of at a cultural moment now, too, where um, people like Sam Altman of OpenAI are coming out and warning about AI. And so there's kind of this parallel thing of, you know, here, here are these folks making all these warnings about you know the the coming powerful machine and then here's this blockbuster movie about the last time we created this powerful thing you know and um i'd say with all the conversations i've been in that was probably one of my subconscious reasons for kind of wanting to make that comparison really you know um but that's interesting um, yeah also, I, I, I just enjoy history, and so that was why I chose Oppenheimer first, you know, just kind of see a biopic about that. So. This is an interesting parallel. I think people are less likely to push against AI because it helps them in their everyday lives. So it's like, well, AI helped me write my email today at work, so I'm good. I'm, I'm good. Like, it's just, so it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I was wondering. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Pamela. I was going to say nothing. No, no. Value. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's my that's my role. You can't steal that from me. <laughs> Please go ahead, Chris. I don't even know if I know what I was going to say. Now. <laughs> that's how much value it had. Even I don't remember it. <laughs> uh, should I go ahead? 
Yes, please. Um, Carl, I was wondering if I could ask you a question about your book. Yeah, of course. Um, so one thing you mentioned was uh, you wanted to frame it as this Shakespearean or Greek tragedy. And uh, one of the things that a lot of Shakespeare's tragedies and even Greek tragedies have in common is the fatal flaw of the protagonist. Or uh, in Greek tragedies, they call it the hamartia, which uh, which brings about their downfall in some way. And I was trying to think of uh, when you when you started writing this book, is it different people's fatal flaws leading them into different situations, or is it one common fatal flaw, such as a lust for power at any cost, or a lust for supremacy at any cost, which is a common theme connecting all these myriad characters? That's that's a really great question. Um, so uh, the, the the answer is a little complicated um, in that I I do think that there is a, a unifying flaw for them, but it's not necessarily. Um, the 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 fatal flaw at least as i viewed it and kind of wrote the story toward so like i i wrote there's a main character to this first book um and he's the one that you open the book on and you're told he's gonna die cities are gonna burn chaos is gonna happen you know blah 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 like i i, I open with this little uh i have epigraphs um i love epigraphs in books and so i have epigraphs and Same. Same. Uh, the first one in chapter one is uh, an homage to Romeo and Juliet, which you know has its famous star-crossed lovers. Um, you know they're gonna die, sort of epigraph or not epigraph, but um, that's the op how Romeo and Juliet opens. And um, I wrote a little homage to that about this main character um, and his fatal flaw in the book is really kind of recklessness and, and reckless like I, I, I wanted to kind of play with sort of um, classic heroic archetypes and that you know mm -hmm. things like you know I, I mean the, the first example that comes to mind for me is like Harry Potter where like Harry gets into trouble but like he's, he doesn't really suffer that many consequences for being reckless like the only serious one he does is in book five um, and beyond that like mm -hmm. he kind of just like gets a little like oh Harry you like <laughs> You're always so reckless. Like, what are you doing? You know, and I wanted a character who like actively causes giant problems by being like recklessly pursuing what he believes is right. And I guess that then gets to what I think unites them all is they, in the pursuit of what they believe is like an ideal society or like a, a, an ideal really ideals, I guess, in a big way, they, they end up um, creating problems. And I, I guess that's sort of the, uh, it's all about sort of these like POV conflicts and how these people with their very subjective perspectives and their views of the world end up um, creating massive issues. And uh, the way that like systems of governments like monarchies or, you know, basically the idea that like anyone in a position of extreme power um, when they make a mistake or they do something bad, the repercussions are immense. And uh, that it's not just like, you know, it's not like cheating on a test 
you know, where that like really mostly affects you and maybe the person you cheated on the test with and like, you know, at most maybe it affects like the, the curve or something or, you know, it, it's like if you uh, choose to avenge someone, uh, like you're a, a king or a prince or whomever and you choose to avenge some slight, you know, uh, that leads to war, that leads to death, that leads to, you know, if you invest in certain things and not others, you know, your people starve. Um, and I, I'm trying to dance around spoilers, obviously, so that, that's the tricky yeah. thing. But uh, I, I would say in the, the strictly like Greek, tra like classical tragedy sense, like it's the balance, right, where like you want they have this fatal flaw that inevitably leads to their death and a lot of things going wrong. But it's also almost like there's like a sort of broader critique too, where like, it was almost like they were fated for this. Like that, like right. everything is kind of, you know, that like almost like the gods are conspiring against them. Right. You know, whether you think of something like Oedipus, right. Where it, Oedipus Rex is like Oedipus makes all the decisions that lead to his life falling apart, but he kind of was put in a position where like, how would he know any better you know like how how would he avoid this and so that like it, it's trying to walk that tightrope of um you know you want your character's decisions to drive the plot but you also want to make it clear that like there are broader broader you know forces um forces that work right that shape them into who they are and, and make things happen here and that and that's the tragedy of it really is like that's why we we pity you know, the main character um, of a tragedy is that, like, we understand why they have this flaw, even if we think it's ridiculous, you know, even if, you know, Achilles, for example, in um, the Iliad, spoilers for a many thousands year old, you know, story that, like, he dies because he's uh, so stubborn, you know, that he won't go out and he, he's like, he's a little prideful little brat. Um, but you, you also get it like when you consider like how he was raised and what, you know, the expectations that have been placed upon him and how he's been lionized and made into this almost like uh, demigod. Um, and, you know, and he, and he has been slighted, you know, he refuses to fight in the war uh, because this woman that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of debate about whether he really loves her or not, and she's a slave, which complicates things, but, you know, he, he basically, he takes shit personally. So, oh, sorry, I don't know if I, we can yes. Chris or not. Um, but uh, that, um, you know, and then he acts on that. And, and that that's, you know, sort of the thing that interests me um, and is what I was trying to accomplish. Um, and certainly, again, there's a broad, it, it's, again, a tricky tightrope to walk because there's the structure of book one and there's the structure of the whole series and I would say the series is not necessarily book one um, there is a tr there are tragic elements throughout and certainly I think the tone of book one continues but the whole series isn't that sort of Shakespearean tragedy in the way that book one is every book kind of has its own structure at least as I'm intending it um, so yeah sorry I hope it, that was again a rambling That's answer no, that was really, really interesting. But unfortunately, it made me think of another question. But I'm going to pause and <laughs> let someone else speak. And then I'll ask my question after something. No, go go ahead. Don't, it's open floor. Yeah, ask. <laughs> um, so it, I found how you were describing it, that you tell us in the very beginning 
what happens in very very uh, broad strokes of course it's more subtle than that and it was reminding me of a very very favorite book of mine called the secret history by donna tart and that book is essentially a murder mystery framed as a greek tragedy greek tragedy it's not shakespearean it's greek tragedy and we need to work this up I've not read this. Secret history. It's it's uh so Donna Tart employs a similar narrative technique where she tells you in the first paragraph itself what happens. And so it is not a who done it which is what murder mysteries usually are but a why done it. Mm-hmm. And so it's all on the writing in making the reader complicit on as to why the characters went through this process of committing the crime whether they were destined to or whether there were you know they were their fatal flaws were amplified by the click they were in etc right. etc et and my question to you was when you are telling us in the beginning what happened there is a huge weight uh, you are placing on yourself as a writer to keep us engaged throughout the text because it is essentially that why done it right so how much of that weight did you feel while writing oh wow another great question um that's another tricky one to answer because i mean the whole process was so long that certainly my feeling in any given part varied a lot um but i i mean i would say overall speaking to keeping the reader engaged i'm in the broadest sense if i am engaged i believe my audience will be. So I have to write a book that I like. Um but to speak to this specific issue, um I think a lot of what was really key for me um it was it was twofold I would say. Um the first was to keep it surprising, you know, that it it's still even though you know what this character is fated for, the path to that uh can still surprise you know there can still be lots of twists and turns and you know there there are a lot of other characters who uh aren't named in that opening epigraph who died throughout the book so you know i had that added thing where it's like i'm still you know throwing you know uh surprises at the reader and, and the other thing you know which i actually think is even more important and is kind of the fundamental thing is i if the reader cares about the characters then i think they're along for the ride you know um I mean certainly the vast majority of readers I think read on some level to connect with the the characters involved even if it's just a single character um and that leads to I mean it goes back to the idea of like I need to be engaged I need to like these characters or at least feel for these characters um and so making sure that every scene kind of increases that value and I mean admittedly every scene is trying to do multiple things at once often times um but you know i really wanted to make you feel for this main character and actually uh, it it's interesting as that cuz he for many drafts i would have people read it and he was the character people liked the least because he kept making boneheaded decisions and they felt like he was too incompetent and so in the in actually the final draft um i pulled back and i actually um this was kind of with AP's help actually um i reworked him a bit to make him 
still the same character, still the same flaws, and still make kind of the same key mistakes, but uh, it's also be more confident because I think there is something to be said for readers often like reading about people being good at stuff, you know? Like it's the whole like thing of like the whodunit getting to that is like we love watching, I mean, it's a puzzle for us to be like, oh, who do we think did it? You know, here are the clues. But it's also like, we like seeing a competent detective go through and like wow everyone and like make justice in an unjust world. And, you know, um, and on top of that, I, I, I think focusing really on the, the heart of the character that even with, you know, even if he has maybe a different world view than a lot of modern readers might, um, just because he comes from a very different society, um, that you can tell that there is uh, kindness and you know goodness in him, and um, and the way that a lot of that comes out is you know by having these relationships um, and really fleshing them out. Like I, I'm a writer who I love twists. Like I, I adore twists. Everything I write uh, has at least one twist, uh, like big twist. Um, like I'm a big whodunit fan. Uh, mysteries are big for me. I think I think that came out of reading Harry Potter. Like Harry Potter was basically how I learned to read, um, and those books are all mysteries and all hinge on a twist. But even more important than that for me are characters, and I try to write from a, a character-focused perspective first and foremost. That I'm interested in exploring people and often very messed up, complicated people, um, and that was sort of, again, getting to your question was kind of the key, was making sure he was as compelling as possible, but also someone you felt like you could root for, you know, who you could like, you could see, you know, all these people that he loves dearly, that he thinks he's working to support them, you know, um, or he thinks he's making decisions to protect them, um, or, you know, e even in a broader sense that he thinks he's making decisions to make a better world, a more just world. Um, and then the consequences that come from that, um, that inevitably lead to his downfall. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think that, again, uh, another rambling answer, but I, I think that hopefully sort of speaks to what you're asking about. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope my questions were not too intrusive. Please, please tell oh, no. me if they are. Not, not, not at all. Not even. I mean, I'm, I'm a, an open book. Um, no pun intended. In a lot of ways, especially when talking about writing, I, it's like my favorite thing to do. Um, other than like writing, is actually I probably like talking about writing more than I even like writing. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> it's certainly a lot more fun after the fact be like, oh, I did this thing. Like, let's talk about why I made all these decisions. And, you know, as opposed to in the moment when you're like, God, I'm the worst fucking writer in the world. Like, this is, this is, this is terrible. No one's going to like this. And, you know, you grind your way through it and eventually have something that hopefully you're happy with. So I actually have a proper question. This is unlike me. So as somebody that's read a lot of books, especially different fictions and genres, and said they like two donuts, how aware are you of the fact that as somebody that's done that and kind of, I don't, when you do that a lot, you kind of look for the narrative reasons for doing things and therefore solve the crime by the devices of writing rather than actually the story. So in TV, I always say, who's the character that didn't need to exist in the story but has been put in the story? And etc. etc. So, how does that change your writing process? How does that influence your writing process? Do you try and obfuscate it, or do you just kind of forget about it, and then 
Um, I am definitely aware of it. Uh, hyper aware of it at times. And, yeah. and actually, I found that I am trying to block out some of that because I think so much of the best writing often comes from instinct over kind of mechanical, um, almost like working off of formulas, even if you're doing it, you know, it's complicated because like certainly you, you can come up with like really clever ideas um, or like clever reveals that, you know, if you know specifically how to like subvert an audience's expectation or like, you know, you know, you want to like deconstruct a specific trope or something, you know, um, that's worthwhile, but it, it, it definitely can make things feel a little more mechanical, I feel like sometimes. Um, and it's and it's hard because you know, like I, I went through formal training, and so um, a big part of writing this book was that I wanted to kind of get away from my training to some degree. Like I was so stuck in like traditional Western three-act structure that I was like, I'm gonna write something that I'm not gonna outline it, you know, I'm not gonna have three acts, like I'm gonna do whatever. And I ended up bringing it uh, back around to, uh, once I discovered the, the, the tragedy aspect of it, and leaned into that, to the kind of five-act structure, um, which coincidentally Shakespeare didn't mean to use. Uh, his plays just often fell into it. But, um, but we all, you know, if you read it now, if you buy a Shakespeare, like a book of Shakespeare's plays, like they're all in five acts. Um, and you know, it's the same thing with like all the Greek tragedies and uh, things like that. Um, so I am very aware of it. And I, there are times I wish I wasn't. It is useful, <laughs> you know, because you often are then good at kind of knowing what the audience is going to expect or to some degree yes I, I, it, I am that. It, it's weird because you know like you will still be surprised like I remember giving the uh, the draft I gave to AP and there were a couple reveals that um, I was like I was so afraid I was like I feel like they're gonna guess this like the first time this character is introduced <laughs> and he was like at the end he was like I didn't see that coming at all like I had no idea if anything I think you could foreshadow it more and I, I it was like I was like AP is super smart he's yeah. super well read he knows all the tropes like he, he edits for a living and he didn't see this thing coming uh, and actually if anything thinks I needs to foreshadow it more and I was like sitting there I was like this is so obvious you know like I, I'm I'm like beating the reader over the head and it, it's and immediately everyone's different, but it, I think you can get neurotic about it. And I think that's what you have to avoid, uh, really getting to the core of what you're asking is like, you can't overanalyze things because I don't know, I'm a neurotic person. And so it's certainly my instinct. And I, and I, I find it uh, important. And certainly as I've grown as a writer and as I feel more confident as a writer, um, that I almost want to get away in some ways from the things I've learned, um, or at least not try to, you know, not try to write so specifically to something like intellectually and more let a certain amount of like instinct and emotion take over because I, I again, I, I, I think you see that with some writers works like, you know, like Carrie by, you know, Stephen King or like different things where there's something to like early books that has this kind of raw emotionality to it um, that I think sometimes gets lost in later works. Um, or like even you look at Stephen King's books that he wrote on drugs and like some of them are nonsense, but like some of them, like, <laughs> like it, it is one of my favorite books of all time. And I think, you know, that book is too long, but also there's something to like, like he wrote that book while he was on Coke and 
there's something to just the wild ideas and the feeling that like he's flying by the seat of his pants, you know, that adds something to it. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I have uh, advice or like even like uh, any like goal in mind because it varies, you know, my opinions about these things change day to day. But I, I the broadly, I, I try to be, you know, it's useful. It's a useful tool to know tropes and to know structure and to know, yeah. you know, to be able to analyze things in like sort of a, a, a broad level of what, you know, we call craft. Um, but writing is an art at the end of the day. And I think if you try to distill it down too much, it can lose that X factor. Um, and that's, I don't know. It, it's a complicated issue. Yeah. I suppose for me, I always boil it down to the fact the only kind of allegory I have is songwriting, but writing four, four minute songs in a 600 page book are a very, very different endeavor. You know, so I can come up with the idea that as a as an idea to write, is I going to subvert, you know, principles? So rather than writing a four bar structure, an eight bar structure, I'm going to write a seven, kind of make it work within the thing of a song, and then a song becomes that. Or you write lyrics, but like you were saying, thinking, oh my God, if anybody hears this, it's so obvious what I'm talking about here. And then somebody <laughs> hears it and they say, oh, I know what that song is about. They tell you, and you're like, you're not even in the ballpark of what that song was about, you know? I think it's completely obvious. So I, I do feel what you're saying in, in that regard, what's inside your head because you thought of it. The genesis idea, the whole way through, you think, oh, God, I, this, is, this is too much, you know? I need to pull back from this. Whereas somebody you know, from the outside is like, no, no. <laughs> this is very different. Absolutely. So you're you're a musician? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't write for anything other than just personal pleasure and the kind of for the fun of it, like I'm saying, like, kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. you know, these kind of like thought pieces. So classically trained musician, didn't do it as a career, but that's my hobby, you know, that's the that's kind awesome. of thing I like yeah. to do. So. Um, and for, especially as therapy, you know, when you're feeling really Absolutely. crap and down, that's that's the time when you need it most. So you, you really lean on it at that stage, you know. I feel yeah. that writing is very therapeutic for me. Yeah. I have found when when, it, when I'm not like stressed about a deadline or something, you know, it's uh, it's definitely an outlet and a way of like processing the world and feeling emotions, you know. Um, yeah, art's good for that. Well, it looks pretty good. While uh, while I was listening, I actually downloaded your book on Kindle, and I did a, a scan of the uh, the first couple of pages. And the prose is just really nice and um, tight and clear, and um, thank you. Just inviting, you know, the names of the characters. So. Yeah, so now it's on the to-be-read list. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Prose is definitely something that matters a lot to me, and I think is it doesn't. I don't know. I, it's a weird thing where I think a lot of readers don't care, um, mm -hmm. but it, it's definitely that. that's um, a compliment that I really appreciate. And that is yeah. its own balance because you don't want to be too flowery, but you know you want to be accessible, but you also want to have a level of, like, I don't know, beauty and lyricism and like the rhythm is so important. That's where instinct comes in, right? Um, is I find that so often, you know, there are all these rules about prose, but I think so often it, it, it's about feeling it mm -hmm. and like you feel when it's right or wrong. Like I'll write a page and I'll be like, this is like, like I, I can feel the sentences that are off, you know? Like the yeah. rhythm of the words is wrong or the specific word choice is wrong. Um, and it's more than just like, you know, two synonyms, you know, that mean roughly the same thing. It's about like, I mean, sometimes it's about the specific meaning of the words, but sometimes it's just about the feel of them or how they sound. 
Um, and I, that's, I don't know, it's an important thing to me. Anyway, that's a, another X factor. Yeah. And, you know, that is a, a thing I, I've noticed that, um, I mean, I'll try to, there are certain books where you need, like, a chapter to get into the writer's style, I guess. And, um, but, yeah, I know it's not everyone wants to uh, stick that out, I guess, or, or wait that long. And so, um, but, yeah, definitely... Uh, looks great so yeah <laughs> thank you i thought of a book question yeah, oh sure go for it <laughs> but it's for everyone amazing yeah. um so full disclosure i i thought in case this will be a disaster let me at least look up carl's book and prepare one or two questions <laughs> so i can say something <laughs> in the friday conversation I, I love this improv game this is good <laughs> you're keeping me on my toes i like i don't know what's gonna what's coming up next so i i read your uh, uh your amazon uh, dot com page and i wanted to read the sample but amazon was being amazon yeah. so i couldn't but uh one of the things it there's a uh, quote you are inspired by and it's one which is very dear to me but from it's by George R. R. Martin, when he spoke of his magnum opus, he said that uh, he wanted to write about the human heart in conflict with itself. Yeah. And so my question to everyone is, what is a book or a series which really, really personifies or really represents this human heart in conflict with itself? It can be any book or any genre or anything, but it has to be a, a book or a series, like not other media. Oh wow, that's. Thank you, Primate. It's almost just a very straightforward question that you asked. With the, the <laughs> I yeah. would like to request Varsha because I feel like I know her answer. I, I have a guess oh. at her answer. <laughs> so, Human Heart in Conflict with Itself, a book that yes. depicts that. Or a series. A book, a series, anything. Hmm. I have to hmm. think about that. I have my answer if, if no one else is ready. Yes, I, I would ahead. love for anyone else to jump in if they are. But I, um, we talked about it earlier. But uh, Realm of the Elderlings, I think that's mm -hmm. that's all it is. That's yeah. the whole story. You know, that's why it's compelling even when not a lot is going on. Um, is it's I mean uh, honing in on Fitz, uh, you know, who's kind of the main character of the saga in, in the broadest sense. I mean, certainly of the the three trilogies where he is literally like the POV. Um, it's all about you know the flaws of this this person. They're grappling with their their own demons and you know his own his inability to accept himself really and accept his place in the world um, and in some ways even accept other people as they are um, and I mean I think that really speaks to the core of it is like the the conflicts we face and you know between you know having sort of contradictory ideals or. Uh, you know, views of the world, um, and that's. I'm so glad uh, you you um, noticed that quote, Paramita. Um, I believe it's originally quoted to William Faulkner. I think is who George R. R. Martin quoted. I could be wrong about that. Uh, I want to say it's okay. Faulkner, and I think that was one of the things when I heard George say that that like spoke to me. That I was like, oh, that's why I love your books. 
I mean, one of the reasons, but certainly like the core, you know, and is, is what I want to write about too. And so that was my little like tip the hat, certainly to uh, him. But yeah, Realm of the Elderlings, 100%. I quickly looked up my Goodreads uh, list. <laughs> I can figure out my heart. <laughs> I haven't read The Realm of the Elderlings yet, but it's on my list. I think my answer is probably The Wars of Light and Shadow. Uh, but I think just the way the narrative is framed, the characters are made with, uh, for spoiler reasons, I won't say. But I think most of us have read Anyway, but for the listeners of the podcast, I wouldn't say why, but I think that probably is a good, what, um, what's what I'm looking for, example of this. But also, Paramita, I'm curious to hear what you think my answer would have been. (laughs) I really thought it would be Malazan. I mean, I suppose yes, but I can't, I don't know. I'll I'll have to think about that a bit more. I don't know if I fully understand what the quote even means, but just at face value, I'd probably say words of light and shadow. It's interesting because the quote sort of leans towards character-based novels, doesn't it? You know, it kind of kind of prompts the mind. And when you say, you know, uh, words of light and shadow, there's an incredibly character-based novel. Farseer, incredibly character-based. I mean, I've only read Assassin's Apprentice and, and, and that's my answer as well because there's something about Fitz's story that's, that just, I mean, I'm sort of afraid to read the rest of the series because that is the perfect book in me. And everybody says it's not even the best book in the series, but it speaks to a young boy that's kind of lost in the midst of this other world and he doesn't feel like he fits for a whole load of reasons and other people, and it, for him, other people look at him and think he doesn't fit in a lot of things. And I think a lot of men, young pe- people that were young men kind of growing up still feel like that. I often think we, we still feel like the 11, 12 year old person that we were, even though you may have those more years on the, on the top you never lose that sense of who you are and when you when I read Assassin's Apprentice I was like, I know how he feels and so when people do good things for him, etc it's kind of overwhelming you know, and it does it reaches into bits of your heart, etc that you didn't know you hadn't stirred and hadn't kind of got a part of and that's why that, that book kind of frightens me and how much I like it in terms of reading on because as a standalone book it's perfect for me I kind of like oh, okay. so I, I I just have to jump in to say that one Fitz keeps that like that's his thing his entire mm. time is like what you're speaking about there is he's almost like he's always grappling with that little scared outcast boy yeah. and that's like that is so core to who he is fundamentally uh, I love you said that so eloquently, Chris, um, and I think definitely speaks to what makes um, these books special. Um, and it, it does. Robin Hobb, I find, makes you elicit emotions that a lot of books don't. You know, really complex, convoluted. Um, like her books are weirdly so comforting to me. Like I feel like I'm sitting by like a nice hearth fire with like warm cider you know surrounded by loved ones but it's also there's it's like tinged with melancholy like her books just feel very melancholic and uh there's a sense of ennui um and it's this weird contradictory um emotional experience that i i think is just oh it's just beautiful that's exactly the line i had in my in my review of it there are emotions in this book that are never explored in any other book 
you know, things like pride, etc., or or emotions that I don't see in any other book. Yet I feel pride for somebody and with some like oh, oh, mm-hmm. I should stop. Yeah. <laughs> Spot on. Steve's is going to be something really dark and miserable. Well, I'm <laughs> looking at my Goodreads list, and I'm like, I just read miserable stuff. I'm trying to find something somewhat positive. It can be miserable. It could, a human heart in conflict yeah. with itself is frequently a miserable experience. That's so. please, please say the second. Uh, sorry, the second. Yeah, the second apocalypse. You know you want to say it. Please say it. <laughs> I was going to, but is anybody redeemable in that series, though? I mean, wait, which series? Maybe Espinet. Backer. Scott Backer. So I haven't read it yet. I mean, I've read the prologue like twice. Uh, I, I've tried, and I'm excited <laughs> to get into it for the, the read through. But I, I guess my question would be: I don't even know if they have to be redeemable, but do they struggle with their sense of self and their like, you know, do they have those conflicting ideals? Like, if if they are, at, do they make decisions that they then feel guilty about, or that they're unsure if we're right? You know, like, or are they are they like? I, I think it's about a lot of internal kind of torment and questioning, you know, what's right and your place in the world and everything. I still miss the uh, series you're talking about. Oh, uh, Prince of Nothing? Oh, Prince of Nothing. Oh, I haven't read that yet. Oh. Um, yeah, there's some characters that do. Um, <laughs> probably they can probably uh, confirm that there's a couple that don't. <laughs> I think uh, just, just a couple, just just this one person who I was. Yeah. The moment they came, I was like, "Please yeah. die or go off screen," and they just didn't. And I'm, I was very sad with Backward about that. I I, yeah. I sort of love the idea that if Paramedia ever released a novel, it would be the most grim dark, grim dark novel ever released. <laughs> yeah. devoid of all hope <laughs> for some people <laughs> I was I was trying to think of something not uh, Baker related so I did think of Mata Zindu from uh, the Dandelion Dynasty okay okay yes, yes. Dandelion Dynasty is also beautiful mm. beautiful Anita, I have a question for you so what are the characteristics of a successful book in your opinion um, like what are what are things we should look for that that are like foundational for you writing the writing Sincerity, that's it. So the writing, like in terms of the characters or the setting or just? The style, like um, if, you, if, you give, if you would give me an excerpt from, from, the author's, from the author's work and not tell me who the author is, not tell me who the book is, not tell me anything, I would still know that, oh, it's this author. Oh, okay. What, so I'm curious. Uh, I'm I, I'm I'm going to push on you for a little more details because 
I think Malazan definitely has both sincerity and like a distinctness to the style and you, you did not like it. And so I'm curious what additional factor is it, you know, um, that, that, you know, is it, I mean, yeah, I don't even know where to, where to go beyond that, that what do you think, um, separates, you know, stories for you, you know, yeah, because you have great observations, actually. As I write my book, I want to write it according to your <laughs> style. Because so. um, you do make really good observations. Yeah. I, I'm really sorry, but I do not have a good answer. Like, I have tried to find a trend or something, but it's really, literally, I have to try the writing sample or, in some case, try about 25% or even half the book before I know if it's for me or if it's successful or not, not for me. Uh, like someone on a, on a Discord server once said regarding somebody else, they were like, uh, this person is a random rating generator and that really fits me because nobody, including me, has any idea what is going to happen until I started the book. Yeah. But I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I, I think that the books that I love, the one thing in common is that they spoke to my heart in some way and they felt sincere to me. So, I mean, I agree with Carl that, I mean, thousands of readers, probably millions, praised the pros in Malazan, but the writing was not for Right, for sure. It doesn't capture your heart. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I Especially sort of... in the beginning. Yeah. I sort of feel your pain, Paramita, because it feels like every book I read educates me a bit more into what it is I like about books. I, I don't know it if we can ever quantify it. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I think I'll constantly be surprised by something. or like so, Often what surprises me is when I don't like something, that I feel like I, yeah. I should. Like, I'm like, it ha this right. has all the pieces I feel like I should like, you know? Um, like, uh, speaking of the Dandelion Dynasty, so I... I I need to give it like a fully fair shot and like read the whole first book. But I had bounced off the first book three times. And I think I got yeah. as far as like halfway through it. And something about the writing style, like it, it's it, it it's hard for me to like fully even like process, you know. Um, I the funny thing we're talking about this, rounding back to The Witcher. I think the translation is a big part of why I struggle with those books is because it feels almost like it was written like it's like it has its moments of being. Like certainly the vocabulary is pretty broad and like it has its moments of sounding pretty, but a lot of it reads like a, like a, a manual, you know, like it has yeah. that like rhythm. Mm. Um, and um, I don't know, it, it's hard to like explain certainly uh, a lot of what, what it But also they change translator. I mean, it is not the same translator oh. for all seven works. So. I think the la uh, the last wish, which is the first short story collection, is done by someone uh, is done by a particular translator, and the second short story collection is someone else. Then for the first novel, they go back to the old translator, and then I think the last four, at least Lady of the Lake, is by someone else. So I don't think it is necessarily a deal breaker. Like three body problem is like that. Well, Ken, you did right. volume one I and three, that and, as well, hmm. and I'm so and I'm sorry, uh, I forgot the translator of volume two. But I think it it read seamlessly. I don't think it's a problem. 
but maybe, maybe it's the problem here because he has used very specific uh, nitty-gritties of folklore because it cannot be that uh, re uh, European readers who are reading it in the language and Polish readers are saying this is a masterpiece and when we are reading it in English we are saying hmm, okay there must be something missing Joel Markelson is the uh, translator I mean, and that's what I thought for the second book Oh, thank you. The Grace of Kings does read like a manual. It almost reads like a history book. Um, the the rest of it the, is. Yeah. It is, and I mean I agree with. Uh, I mean I relate to what Carl said so much because uh, I started the Grace of Kings and I DNF'd it at fifty or fifty five percent, something like this. And then uh, I was watching this booktube channel, Ponderings of Feet, and he was uh, responding in the comments to me. So I said I DNF'd it at half and He was like, Ah, you DNF'd it just when it gets. Mm. Good. So, if possible, try carry on. Everybody always says that about a book. So if they haven't, said, you've stopped reading it. Oh, you stopped like just at the the very second. And you're like, God damn it! Because it was within the book. Like, if they had said that it gets better in book two or book three, I would have said, sorry, you have to like. I want to spontaneously read book two by myself. But since it was the same book, I kept going, and I really liked it. And on a reread, also, I really liked it. So I don't, maybe it is absolutely not for you, and your opinion won't change even if you pushed through to the end. But that was my experience, one experience of mine in which my opinion did change, and I finished it. Book two is one of my favorite books, though. That's the well, Storms is so good, so good. So it's worth hanging in there. Too many books. Too many. Books. Oh, you're you're muted. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm back. Um, yeah, th that uh, I, I definitely need to give it a fair shot, and it, it's certainly not an uncommon thing for me. You know, I, I don't know if this happens to all of you too, but I'm a big mood reader, and definitely if I'm not in the right mood for a type of story, I'll bounce off it and then return to it later. Or like you know, talking about the Wheel of Time, like. It really took me a few books before I was like really into it, um, and I can't believe I gave it several books before I was really into it. But um, and even then, you know, there still was like a book eleven. I think is horrible, um, but you know, book twelve I thought was great. Anyway, uh, yeah, Dandelion Dynasty. I I've heard so many good things. I need to just like s stick with it and like really, uh, yeah, give it a shot. Have you read it, Varsha? Have you read uh, Dandelion Dynasty? No, I want to eventually. <laughs> I mean, I've put a lot of things on hold until after I finish Malazan, and that t the time is coming. <laughs> You're going to put things on hold when you finish Malazan to restart Malazan. <laughs> I was just about to say it. <laughs> well, at that point, it doesn't count as something I haven't played. There's something about... Um, so I have like, I don't know, 18 CDs or something in flight on Goodreads. Uh, it's a lot and it's actual mental load in my head that I have these many things to finish. But I'm not going to count the reread as one of the things that I need to finish because that, that will go on for four years and I'm, that, I'm not signing up for that kind of load. So um, I will do the reread, but I will re read other things besides that I've put on hold since. Varsha, you have a 15 year friendship committed to here. Are you saying. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the Esselman books. Uh, oh, I was going to yeah, say, yeah. and Erickson has more books. 
Yeah. Ericsson has more books. And oh, we have. So that's not meant to load, though. It's a 15 year friendship. So I'm not counting. <laughs> 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 so the 15 year friendship for those who aren't familiar with the concept is because we're reading um, the SF Masterworks one book a month and there are 160 of those <laughs> going to go on for a while. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm going to die one book short. I, I can feel it. No. <laughs> <laughs> My legacy is going to be like, Chris isn't here this month, unfortunately passed. Um <laughs> So close. Yeah. <laughs> so close. Uh, so I was doing some uh, math with like compound interest formulae to see how many more books we have to read <laughs> that accumulate over the next 15 years. <laughs> so it's plus 60 at least. Uh, that'll take some time. And then, you know, <laughs> eventually we'll catch up. Eventually. <laughs> it's good so far. The first two were great. So. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say we didn't hear uh, Lena's Well, you know, I was thinking the the Poppy War series, um, and I think that's for I because I do gravitate, I think, toward female uh, complex female characters. Um, like Felicin in Malazan, and actually Tavori too, and you know, um, there's several complex characters in Malazan. Of course, Daenerys, um, but uh, Rin in uh, the Poppy War series um, is, um, I do think, very complex. And uh, what was the phrase someone said? Um, like works against herself sometimes, I guess, if that's a good way to put it. But um, so, and in fact, this semester, my, um, because of a grant we're working on about Northeast Asia, um, I'll be uh, teaching um, with the Poppy War and Ken Lu's um, short story collection the paper menagerie and uh, oh. the body problem. So everything we're talking about, so I'll have like this big comparison I can make between all of these characters now, but I'll get to revisit Rin and um, just find out more about why she's so complex, I guess. But, but that's why, of course, Robin Hobb, um, you know, that was one of my first go-to bots as well. Um, so, but there's so many, you know, it's really hard to just pick one, I think. So. In the, speaking of AP, I know we, we edited uh, Carl's book, but I wanted to give a shout out to Varsha because on Varsha's new video, AP actually commented and uh, had some high praise. So I thought that was awesome, Varsha. Yay. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I've been hyper nervous making those videos, so it's really nice to get some positive feedback about them. So, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the, the series. Um, so it's called Bright Threads in the Tapestry. The name of the series is influenced by uh, the Fionnuar Tapestry by Guy Gabriel K, 
which also happens to be the book because of which I started the series. Um, it just it has such beautiful writing, and I wanted to go you know break it down in detail and talk about it. So um, and also as it happens, I have two other series in flight which I think have excellent writing. Uh, Malazan, of course, and the Wars of Light and Shadow, and I have really large highlights for all of them. <laughs> so I wanted to like sit down, and there's like connecting themes for several of the highlights that I have. So I wanted to like talk about the connecting themes and talk about sev- specific lines and passages that I really enjoy. So um, that's what I'm doing. Each week, I discuss one of uh, a passage from either Fiona Tapestry or Malazan or uh, Words of Light and Shadow. And eventually, the plan is to rotate more books in. <laughs> and uh, other series that I plan is uh, Discworld and uh, Lavi Tidar's books, uh, Central Station and Martian Sands. But that's it. But thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciate it. It's been a great deal of fun to record. And it's nice that you're getting an audience. My worry was I'll say, I'll put it out there and I'll get like two views. I'll definitely check it out. That sounds really great. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. I mean, AP comments. Yeah, that's. I would never be able to do that. No way. It's, it's one thing to sit and say, oh, I like this book because I like the characters or whatever else is, but to actually be brave enough to kind of say, I like this because, and do sort of a, even in a perspective or intellectual breakdowns, that's like amazing. So, I've only watched The Curse of the Mystery one, obviously, and uh, it was so good. I actually had a little bit of a chuckle when I heard you read the word brigantine because we just discussed it actually recently, you know, but it was in, in that passage that you read out. I was like, okay, yeah. that's nice. I think we had that discussion. I, I forget whether we had it before or after I recorded that episode, but yeah, yeah. I remember we had a long conversation about it. <laughs> so full. Yeah, it's really neat. Also- just want to say very quickly that human heart and conflict with itself, like I swear, describes all of uh, Guy Gabriel K's stuff. Like that's Ooh, that's yeah, what he writes yeah. about. Uh, I just read Lines of Alrasan for the first time recently, and now it's one of my all-time favorite books. Mm. Like it mm. blew me, just so beautiful. Um, oh, his writing. Lions of Alrasan. Um, it's it's one of his standalones, and it's just it's I it left me speechless. Like it moved me in a way that. Um, I hadn't been moved since I uh, read, in, you know, one of the Robin Hobb books that I hadn't read before. It was like I found it just really powerful. Hmm. It, his writing is absolutely brilliant. I'm I'm reading his works in publication order, and if you know our tapestry is him at the beginning of his career, yeah, yeah. oh my god, I cannot wait to read what else he's done. <laughs> but he writes elevated prose, but it is very, very readable. I mean, it's, yeah. that's what yeah. makes it such an incredible skill. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like it's like music in books, you know, like it's like listening to music, but you're actually reading. It's it's very very beautiful. It's very different too from anything I've read. I actually got because uh, I I've only read Tikana of his, but it was, sometimes you get to the afterwards, you know, by the the, the author and kind of what they say and they kind of brush over them sometimes it's just dedications but I'd read Tagana and he basically said he read Tagana because of a series of poems by uh, a Northern Irish author called Brand Freedom called Translations 
I get so emotional with that part because it sort of all made sense as to why I connected with a lot of the themes in, the, in that book, mm. that kind of, that belonging to a land but not belonging to a land, all of that kind of thing. And then somebody from Canada had written that. Like, I, I always think that lens, I'd say lens onto, you know, my life or mm. my experiences is, is just, just makes things so, so incredible. And it's such a skill in an author to be able to do that successfully. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The uh, and before and time is I, I tended to get to one of Rick's questions because he had some just fantastic questions on the forum. So before we wrap up, I wanted to get one of his questions in because he has lots of great ones. Um, at the he has an interesting one here about um, what makes an ideal review for you as a reader. So interesting what everyone's opinion on that is. And thank you again, Rick, for the fantastic questions. So who wants to go first? Okay, I'll go first, I guess. Uh, <laughs> for me, uh, the ideal review for me as a reader, what usually gets me to buy a book are negative reviews. So uh, whenever Parmita says, this is too bleak for me, I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy that book. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's great because whenever I see negative reviews, even on Goodreads, that people say, this book is too violent, it's too dark. Yeah. I was depressed for a week. It's like, okay, that book's for me. So uh, it's a good thing. Everyone has different opinions. So it's actually a compliment. And you have some great insights, Barbita, So, And you did give uh, Friends of Nothing a try. So <laughs> kudos, kudos for that. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it's it's not, definitely not for everyone. Yeah, I can, even though I like it, it I can. I can for sure say it's definitely not for everyone. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. I like a review to be analytical. I like to have some analysis in it as to why a certain thing works for you. So um, there's a couple of people that I think are very, very good at it, uh, at, at giving broad strokes, but then honing in on just one little small bit that really connected them to it or made them turn them off because of it. And I usually find it's in the insight of that that makes me think, Ah, that's for me or not because the, the, the little that I do about, know about me when reading taste I can kind of either make a decision based on the analysis rather than the kind of broad strokes because broad strokes could be in anything I can go next oh sorry go ahead Leila oh, I was just going to say um, I think my approach is a little different I do look at like you know, how many people have responded to this book, like the number of people that have read it, and, um, you know, how many stars did it get just to get a sense of what's going on. But I really don't, you know, my first, uh, the reason I, I choose a book has more to do with, like, a combination of, um, you know, um, I guess the, uh, the genre, um, if I've heard of the author, uh, the book cover, um, you know, and so it's really kind of subjective. I, and I, I make decisions differently every time, you know, because I like to read different kinds of books. I like historical fiction and I, I like science fiction, fantasy and all that. So just many things. But I, I listen to or read reviews after I've read the book because I want to expand my perspective on it, you know, more than uh, using them to make the decision, you know. Hmm. Um, so, like right now, I've just decided to read another book because 
I've got a sense of who wrote it, and uh, it's probably going to be pretty cool. And so it just comes in different different directions. I think um, I was going to say almost ex exactly the same thing. I read reviews after I finish books, um, either. And I think what I tend to focus on is mostly five stars and one star to see if people liked the book for the same reasons I did or what, like, if I really liked the book, then what, how, how, how could anyone dislike it and find things that um, they didn't like. And I think the ones that I appreciate the most are those that tend to stay objective and not, um, if they are you know, based on some misreading of the text or something that uh, they have misinterpreted, uh, then I would be upset by that review. But if not, if even for negative reviews of books I like or vice versa, if they largely stayed objective and, you know, or were clear about things that were personal opinions as opposed to just like, you know, making judgments on the book that this is bad uh, because of reasons that are very <laughs> individual and subjective then um, those those reviews bother me but otherwise uh, yeah I think it's good if you are good about stating opinions as opinions and um, stay largely objective <laughs> I'll, I'll go then um, I, I definitely think there are, there are two kind of sides to it. Um, actually, there are probably more than that, but certainly like the reviews I read after I've read a book and like often I'm reading those because either I want my opinion validated because I'm insecure or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, I, I'm looking for some new insight, you know, where I'm like, oh, that person, you know, noticed something I didn't notice or they appreciated something that I didn't appreciate. And now I suddenly have this, you know, broader, uh, more nuanced um, perspective of work and often, appreciate it more um but if i'm looking for something to read uh i mean a few things this may be vapid but i like when it a review is like fun to read you know or to watch or something you know where there's a level of like personality or humor or anything um i guess that's the entertainment aspect of it yeah. but otherwise to um certainly like chris said the the analytical perspective if, if the reviewer can kind of explain why they like the things they didn't just say they like it they thought it was great you know they're like the characters are great well like why like what 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 is it about the characters that you found compelling you know um if they talk about prose that's usually a good sign for me um because a lot of readers don't care and so when they do that tends to be like okay like this these are my people um and that helps sort of uh, you know, figure things out. When they talk about themes, that's another big thing. Um, and not just in sort of the broadest sense, but like can actually like maybe discuss things in a little more detail. Like I think, um, you know, uh, that's always something I appreciate is when they, they, you know, it's not just the movie's about sadness, you know, it's about, it's like, oh, the movie's about like processing our grief in the wake of blah, 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 you know. Um, when I feel like, yeah, they, they've really, the reviewer has analyzed, you know, the work and, and processed their own feelings and can like explain that, that often I find is more helpful than um, just something very broad. I love the medical views. Yeah. 
thematics are, are the bit that I I really love in books. When a book mm-hmm. tells a story, but you come away from going, that actually might have been about something else. You know, that, <laughs> that could have been somebody's personal grief in there. You know, you get to the end of it and then kind of think about it, or it could be about, you know, with capitalism or whatever whatever it is on the side. Love that stuff. 100%. Parmita? I don't have a lot to add more than what has been said. It's a little bit of all of those things. I do love a good rant review and I'm thoroughly entertained by them in written and video form. But uh, I, I wouldn't say I make a book recommend. I mean, I take book recommendations from them. I mean, they are usually for things that I will avoid and then I just watch people go, what the hell is going on? And I'm like, yes, I feel you. But uh, for book recommendations, it's mostly what uh, everyone else said. <laughs> And uh, no, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask Carl, and time just got away from us, but uh, how long do you think the strikes will last? If you were, because you have some, if you um, had to guess, just curious about your, what your feeling is about the whole thing. My answer is definitely different now than it was a week or two ago, um, because they're, the Writers Guild is negotiating again. They've just gone back to the table with right. the AMT, or, or, as it is, the studios came back to the table finally. Um, and... That is really good news. Um, I don't think it's going to be an overnight thing. Uh, I mean, on top of that, they have to negotiate with SAG. Um, So I am cautiously optimistic for October for everything to be back up and running. Um, Maybe like mid to late October. Um, I think it's possible it takes as long as December. I don't think the strike will still be happening in the new year. I mean, mm-hmm. at a certain point, they've just bled so much cash that like they yeah. have to get things back up and running. Um, you're seeing that more and more as time goes on. That like Wall Street in- increasingly, and you know, a bunch of these big uh, financiers are like, you have to stop. You have to make a deal. Like something has to happen because this can't keep going. It it feels like this is one of the most for creatives and in all industries. This feels like one of the most important strikes that I can ever remember. This is this is a yes. just strike. This isn't this isn't just about pay. This is about the very act of creativity and how it's perceived. I think. Absolutely, I, I I'm so glad you said that, Chris. And I think that that's something anyone who's listening or watching um, that this really is important. Like, yeah. Really important, and especially if I can tell you for. I think it is beyond just this industry. Um, I mean, I think it's true in, in a sense of like labor movements too, that yeah. we're seeing, a, a, you know, a, a return of like unions having more power. And I think more and more people are unionizing um, both in and outside of Hollywood. But that uh, it really is about the future of the profession and the future of creation. And, you know, where things were headed was, uh, you know, speaking to like TV writing specifically, I can say like it was going to stop being a very, like a real career for most people. Um, And if the writers don't get a majority, like really the key things that they're looking for, you know, um, it will no longer be a real career path except for like the top, top, top. Um, And it's already, you know, so hard to break in. And like, you can only imagine if like you can actually be writing but it's like a gig economy and you're making, you know, $40,000 a year, you know, and so you're having to work in something else too. And then it's that much harder to take meetings. And um, so 
it's uh, it's really important. It is, and I mean, God, for actors, arguably even more so, because they're taking their likenesses, you know, yeah. and wanting to just own it in perpetuity. Um, so it's this is a huge deal, and I, and I think certainly the guilds are aware of that. Interesting times for sure. <laughs> lots of lots yep. of <laughs> I feel like we can go on for another few hours, but I know all of you have lives to live, so. <laughs> But uh, but before we go, uh, Chris, can you tell us where people can find you? Uh, you can find me on my YouTube channel, YouTube channel, which is just my name. Um, or you can find me on Vosh channel tomorrow and on Sunday as well, I think, I believe as well. Um, or you can find me on Twitter, X. Oh, no, you can't. I don't post anything. What am I talking about? That's absolute nonsense. <laughs> find me on the page to inform us is the next best place. Nice. And Carl, where can people find you and your work? Uh, so, my work is, uh, if you want the ebook, uh, that is on Amazon exclusively. Um, the paperback, there is no hardback, but the paperback you can buy through any service, Amazon included. You can also get it at like Barnes & Noble or uh, Waterstones, I think, too, um, in the UK. Or um, it, it's I distribute through Ingram Spark, so... Uh, they they distribute widely, um, so you can get that wherever. Um, and then in terms of like my socials, I'm on Twitter and Instagram both, I believe, at uh, at Carl D Albert. Um, and then I think that's I'm on TikTok too. I, I post TikToks occasionally if the kids are on the TikToks. Um, <laughs> I believe I'm also Carl D. Albert there. Maybe Carl D. Albert author. I don't know. I'm trying that out. So, um, yeah. And definitely the page chewing forums, which is a great community that I'm so happy to have stumbled into. Yes, it's great to have you there. Really appreciate it. And Parmita, where can people find you and your uh, your uh, wonderful insights? And you always have the best questions. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, I just want to thank everyone for uh, letting me be a part of the panel. I'm on the page chewing forums almost every day, and you can read me complain about stuff there. I don't complain no, not that at all. Much. Hardly at all. Um, was it as bad as you thought it would be? Because I know you're a little bit nervous. What was your? What are your thoughts after now that we're wrapping up? Uh, it, I, I mean, it was delightful. But I hope I didn't, like, you know, <laughs> jabber on for too long. I, I, I always don't know what I'm doing. So, But thank you, everyone. I just want to thank everyone on the panel for letting no, me it's, it's, That's what this is about, is just jabbering and just nonsense. So no worries. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, so you don't worry about that. <laughs> so, and uh, Layla. Thank you, Paramita, by the way. Yeah. That, that was, you, I thought it was great. I mean, everyone here, I thought had great questions and insights and everything. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, and um, Paramita, I liked your first blog. I think that, I think yes. you have a, um, with all of your knowledge, I think you can put that to good use um, in blogging and writing. And uh, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram and um uh, at El Goshi or um, at Validine Magazine. Mm -hmm. So, and of course on page two. And Varsha, Varsha is going to be busy the next few months. I can 
Guarantee we have lots of things happening over on Varsha's channel. I almost, feel, I almost feel bad because we have so many things planned and I don't want to overwhelm you. Oh, um, I please do. I love reading together and it's, it's been one of my favorite things to do. I The last few months have been my best reading time. Um, but yes, uh, you can find me on Reading by the Rainy Mountain. That's my YouTube channel and the About page has other ways to reach me. And we have a lot of uh, reading groups coming up soon. <laughs> Lots of stuff, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Layla. I'm glad you mentioned Parameter's blog sheet is blogging for page chewing, so very wonderful uh, first post. So, great, great job, Parameter. So, thank you for doing that as well. Mm -hmm. Cool, well, thank you everyone for coming by, and hope everyone listening has a fantastic weekend. And we will see everyone very soon.